Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Have you ever uh, thought about uh, how strange it is that out in the world, outside of humanity, you know, out in the, the animal kingdom, in the, in the wild, that it's totally socially acceptable for some really strange things to occur? Like, I think about one of the most prevalent stories from my childhood, a movie called The Lion King, right? It's a movie that starts with a song about the circle of life which pretty much encapsulates the entire teaching of the Lion King, Mufasa himself, down to his young son, Simba. A teaching that says that all things exist in the relationship of being devoured in order to keep a balance within the ecosystem of the savannah. Every being had a place, and often that place is ultimate destiny, was becoming someone else's snack. It's a pretty easy thing to teach your kid when you are the Lion King who sits atop Pride Rock and looks down on all of this happening, and when all of these things that are happening below you are your snacks, right? And it's also kind of weird because it doesn't offend us. We let our children watch this, grow up on this kind of teaching. It's nature. That's, that's how the world literally works, right? Because even the lion, the lion king himself, we know eventually someday will die, will become dust, will fertilize the ground that grows the grass, that those at the bottom of the chain eat. It's just how it is. We don't blink an eye at it. It's not a problem for us. And sure as heck isn't a problem for them. But you know, even within species, it's not like socially unacceptable to do some things that we would certainly call criminal here in the world of humans. You know, uh, Lexi and I's first home together was an apartment complex with lots of ponds. And when you have lots of ponds, you get lots of ducks. And when there's lots of ducks, you get lots of ducklings. Well, yeah, that too. But, <laughs> but you get lots of ducklings. And every year we just watch ducklings become ducks. And it was, it was really cute to watch them waddle along and follow their mama all over the place. But one day we were taking a walk around our complex and we noticed that there was a duckling who was separated from the rest of his little duck family. He or she had a, a bit of a bum leg. They couldn't waddle too well. And so concerned, we tried to figure out a way to reconnect this little chick with its people. But what we quickly find out by a simple search of the internet was that our little friend had likely been purposely abandoned. He or she was just too slow. And so Mama abandoned them out of self-preservation, and she wouldn't 
take this little chick back. You see, in a world full of gators and less than attentive drivers, you're only as fast as the slowest member of your little pack. And so it's really sad. It was, it was hard for us to come to terms with, but I don't think the ducks were too concerned about it. Just us humans. And that's because this is a pretty unthinkable act for a mother to abandon her child. Actually, it's a crime. Just last week, a one-hour-old baby was left abandoned outside of a trailer park in Mulberry, Florida. Luckily, she was found and she's healthy. But that makes you feel something terrible inside of you, doesn't it? And that's because, as human beings, we have an internal sense of one of God's most prevalent attributes. Something that we have been given because we bear God's image. That sense is called justice. When there is suffering, when there is pain, when there is harm being done in our world, we have been given an internal reaction that demands that it be made right. Justice is a highly prevalent theme throughout the entire biblical story, and it's really something that the church and we as God's people are called to be deeply concerned which can be tough for us to reckon with in a society that's just so deeply divided over this simple word, justice. But just because it, it might be tough doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to talk about it. And it certainly doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to live it out in our lives. And so today, we're going to begin a, a, a short three-week series called Walk. And this series is going to focus around the words of the prophet Micah. Particularly, we're going we're gonna to dissect Micah 6, 6 through 8, and see uh, the wisdom that it speaks into our lives and how we are called to practically live that out in our world. Now, Micah's words come to uh, Israel in the 8th century B.C., about, so that's like 800 years before Jesus came onto the scene. When, when Israel is split into two nations, the northern kingdom called Israel in the north, and the southern kingdom called Judah down in the south, which is where Jerusalem was. And things are going fairly well internally for both of the nations of Israel. Things are, things are okay, but disaster is looming out in the distance for both of them. And what you'll find by studying Israel's history is that neither the, the kingdom of Israel in the north nor the kingdom of Judah in the south is doing a very good job of living into this ethic of radical equality that God had handed down to them and taught them through the law. Now, if you're reading along in the Bible with us and you are absolutely in the midst of the law right now, and it's so boring. But, even though it's super hard to stick with, if you read these laws and you just know a little bit about the surrounding culture around Israel, you'll see that these laws really taught an ethic of equality that was unmatched and unseen in the world outside of Israel, even though we read them and it comes across as just super patriarchal and all about the men. There's subtle language in there that, that creates an ethic of 
quality. But we're not talking about the law. We're talking about Micah. Micah's a prophet, right? Micah is writing to speak out and to remind the people what they have been called to do as those whom God has called to himself. And so this comes from the book of Micah, like I said, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. So Micah is, is speaking to the people. And, and here's the thing about prophets. They're kind of snarky, all right? It's just they are sassy people, all right? So this is what Micah says. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Oh, but he has told you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly? with your God. So in the form of like a sarcastic rhetorical question, Micah is making an argument that says like, hey, it's not about your sacrifices, really. That's not the ultimate thing that God wants from you. Which if you read the book of Leviticus last week, right now you're like, that's not what it said. Because that thing was filled with sacrifices and blood and like a whole lot of stuff that God seems to think is really important. I know. I read it too. But what Micah is saying is that's not the end all be all. Okay? What Micah is saying is that stuff is not really, really at the heart of what God is after. God is after the fruit of you following and obeying him. What God is after are these three things that you do justice, that you love mercy or kindness, same word, and that you walk humbly, that you exhibit humility. Micah is saying this is what it all boils down to. That's what the whole law is about. That's what all these sacrifices point to. These three things are super important to God throughout your entire Old Testament. And if you know anything about the life of Jesus, you can probably see how Jesus embodied these three ways of life quite naturally as well. And so today we're just going to focus solely on the first of these three requirements from God. Doing justice. And so let's just dive right in. You know, when we look at the whole story of the Bible, we see that as soon as sin is introduced into the world, things start to go really, really Relationships start to be fractured, and violence becomes a defining part of the human condition. So the failure of Adam and Eve to obey God in the garden caused their relationship to one another and their relationship to God to be broken. And then once their son Cain kills their other son Abel, the trajectory of humanity declines sharply, sharply towards violence, pain, and injury. And the entire work of God to fix all of this mess that's been unleashed on the world is what is called God's justice. 
God sees the brokenness of this world and sets out on a course of action that seeks to bring wholeness and restoration back to the world that he created. He seeks to make it right or righteous again. You see, God's justice, which is a, a Hebrew word that's fun to say, mishpat, say it, mishpat. It's fun, right? Yeah, it's fun. Is deeply connected to his goal of making people and communities righteous. Righteousness, which is another Hebrew word that's also fun to say, tzadakah. Yeah, tzadakah. Yeah, yeah. You sound like you're speaking to snakes. Is a, a, it's a, but that's a righteousness, right? It's, it's a really churchy word that we use and often misunderstand. But it, it's really critical that we understand what righteousness really means if we're going to understand the end goal of God's justice. And therefore, our own pursuit of doing justice in our world. See, righteousness is not like some checklist of whether or not you've been naughty or nice or good enough, right? But if you're like me and you hear like somebody say, like, oh, yeah, they're a very righteous person, like he's a righteous guy or she's a righteous woman, then what you probably think of is that they're like somehow morally blameless, that they have checked all the, the right boxes in order to have achieved some high level of goodness and maybe... They even have like a certificate on the wall that says that this person is good, right? But that's not what biblical righteousness really means. Righteousness is a state of being in a right relationship. It means that the brokenness that our sin introduces into our relationships is healed and that we are broken free from the cycles that cause the deterioration of our relationships, and that we do the work that is required in order to not slip back into those cycles. So if you're like, what are all those words that you just said meaning? Here's an example. <laughs> Say you are an employee, and uh, as an employee, you struggle with uh, time management, particularly in the morning. And it causes you to be late to work frequently, if not constantly. And your supervisor, who also happens to be your friend who vouched for you and got you the job, has been going through noticing this and covering for you as you continue to struggle to come to work on time. And after being repeatedly reminded, like, hey, you got to get here on time, you still fail to fix the problem. Now your friend is starting to put their own livelihood on the line by sticking their neck out for you. And so it, it, it gets complicated, right? The, the relationship at, between supervisor and you is complicated, and the relationship between you and your friend, more importantly, is strained. Your friendship is suffering. You are bothering your friend deeply. In order to have a righteous relationship, with your friend, again, you know, some things need to change on your end. You need to take a look at, you know, what's happening in the morning that causes me to not be able to show up to my place of employment on time. And 
what you realize is it's not really about the morning, it's about the night before, because you keep staying up till 2 a.m. watching Netflix instead of going to bed, which causes you to wake up late because you sleep in. And that is what causes you to be late. That is what causes your current relational stress with your friend. And so you say to your friend, you know what, I am sorry. I didn't mean it to be this way. I'm going to change. And your friend is like, yeah, right, because that's what friends do. But you do change. You start going to bed at 10 p.m. You start getting enough sleep. You start getting up early in the morning. You start showing up to work on time, and your friend is like, yeah, we'll see how long this lasts. But the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and maybe the months even turn into years. And as time goes by and you continue to be a model citizen of your employment, your friend starts to trust that you'll be where you say you'll be when you say you'll be there. And after all of this time goes by, your friendship starts to get better, and all of a sudden, it's like they almost forgot that all of that ever happened again. Because now you're a good employee. You're a good friend. Your, rela your relationship is what we would call righteous again. There's trust. Do you see the point here? Righteousness is the goal of the human experience. It's what God wants for us. God wants us to have a righteous relationship with one another, and God wants us to have a righteous relationship with him. But the only way for any of that to happen is for justice to be done. See, righteousness is the goal of biblical justice. God's justice in the Bible, which can also be called judgment, Judgment, justice, same word, mishpah. It's almost exclusively referring to restorative justice. It is the means by which relationships are meant to be healed. So for you and your boss slash friend, that justice probably came in the form of a conversation that went something like, I can't cover for you anymore, and if you don't change, I'm going to fire you. And also... I don't want to be your friend anymore because you'll hurt me. In the Bible, it looks like God's setting forth a whole bunch of laws about how people were practically called to love one another and to make up for it when, when terrible things happen between people and amongst the community. It looks like God giving a few practical ways for people to show that they love him. And when people still couldn't get it together, God's justice looked like the person of Jesus Christ who came to embody relation, righteousness, to show what righteousness looks like, and to spread righteousness to all those around him and to you and I through his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the grave. And that's really the basis of justice. So like I said, I know that justice is kind of like this buzzword and something that the world outside of the church has really distorted. But God is quite clear that the type of justice that we are called to seek after and do is the kind of justice that creates a state of righteousness. We are called to be people who go about the work of restoration. 
We're called to be the people who restore individuals, who restore communities, and who repair broken relationships that have been fractured by sin. But often what we do is we get a little bit too caught up in just doing the church Christian thing. We get just too caught up in trying to be like good Christians. We overemphasize all the secondary stuff. Just like the prophet Micah asked, like, what does the Lord want from me? Lots of religious observance, lots of sacrifices. Not really. Do justice. So what does that look like for us as Christians now, like 3,000 years after the prophet Micah spoke? Well, it, it really begins with us evaluating our world and our own lives to see what's not, what's not righteous here. Where are the broken relationships in our lives where are the broken relationships in our, in our communities, in our, in our world? Where could some restorative justice be used in order to make this world look more like the world that God created it to be? And beyond that, like how are you, how are, how are we as a church called to embody that work? I'll tell you that it starts with meeting people where they are rather than where we expect them to be. You know, in the book of Romans, uh, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he, he highlights uh, this, this reality that he sees going on there. You see, the, the Roman church is a community of people that's divided over some really silly things you've been around church long enough, you know that they're not alone, right? <laughs> you see, the believers who converted to uh, following Jesus from the, the Roman pagan religion, you know, the, the religion where they used to worship uh, Zeus and, uh, you know, whatever the other names of the planets are, uh, those folks are in the majority in the Roman church. But they do have uh, another group of Jesus followers in their midst who converted to following Jesus from the Jewish religion. What you need to understand about first century Jewish converts to following Jesus was that they didn't give up their Jewish identity. They didn't stop being ethnically or culturally Jewish, which means that they continue to follow a lot of the practices of Judaism particularly those practices that concerned the types of food that they ingested or even were allowed to be in the same room as. And so Paul uh, writes a letter to these Romans and says to them, like, hey, knock it off, essentially. But this is what he really says in a much nicer way. This is Romans chapter 15. Starting at verse 1, he says, We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You see, each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
So for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So may the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The important words here in uh, Paul's writing to these folks is right in the first verse where he refers to certain people as strong and others as weak. It's Paul's writing in the Greek language now and the words behind the Greek for strong and weak simply mean powerful and powerless. So the strong in this context though, were those that had no dietary restrictions, while those who were weak were those that did. And the relationship between them was suffering because this powerful majority of Roman Christians was not being sensitive to the cultural needs of the powerless minority. These Gentile, non-Jewish Christians would include in their fellowship time foods that Jewish Christians couldn't eat or even be in the same room as. This powerless minority was excluded from the communal life of the church because it involved practices that they could not partake in. So Paul's point to the Romans is that in order to do justice for these Jewish converts and to have a righteous relationship with them, they must put aside their own preference for certain types of meat in order to nurture the faith and well-being of their neighbors. For you and I, this means simply looking at the ways that our church and that our lives are unintentionally exclusive. Are there practices in our community or in our world that, that cause harm even without meaning to do so? And what does it look like for us to, to shed light on that, to, to do justice to those situations and create a world that is more righteous? It's no secret that we live in dark times. We live in divided times. As a country, we continue to draw lines of separation between ourselves. Blue, red, black, white straight, queer, whatever, whatever. But this is not the way of Jesus. And I truly hope for and believe that it's really not as bad out there in the world as our televisions tell us it is. But regardless of how bad it is, it will only get better if we meet people where they are and do the work of justice that leads to restored love to restored trust, and to restored and righteous relationships. We cannot just allow ourselves to accept that which is broken and just say like, oh well, like that's just the way that it is, or it's just the circle of life. Survival of the fittest. That might work out in the African savanna where the lion is king, 
But that doesn't work here in Fort Pierce where Jesus is king. That doesn't work here in America where Jesus is still the king. And that certainly doesn't work in God's kingdom where God and Jesus certainly are the king. And so there's so much work to be done. And so much work that we're already doing. But this is the work that Jesus came and embodied. And it is the work that God tells us through the prophet Micah that we are required to do. So the question is, are you, are we as a church going to do it? I think the, the right answer 